Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I remember well when the Reserve Bank was just a bond-selling agent of the Treasury. He would not be willing to reconsider the Greek program. A smaller than expected increase for consumer prices. That the United States economy added almost 5 million jobs. These numbers aren't anyone's opinions or political views. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. The idea of debt deflation, we're in debt while prices are going down. We seem a long way from that now, don't we? But could that be just around the corner? And what about the man who focused his work on how debt and deflation can cause and have caused great depressions? American Irving Fisher, one of the influencers of Steve Keen. Today, we talk about Irving Fisher with Steve. We talk about the man and his theories. That's this week on the Debunking Economics podcast. So, yeah, this week and actually for the next five weeks, that's going to take us over the whole Christmas period and into next year, whatever mm-hmm. year that will be. What will that be? To 2024. 23. Oh, hey, well, you are getting ahead of yourself. <laughs> I am. <laughs> what, 2022 wasn't bad? And you want even more catastrophe I just, I just want to get over this period of okay, uh, you, know, of you know my line about this particular decade. It's the hold my beer decade, okay? So 2020 was bad enough. We start with COVID. Yeah. 20. 21, we had uh, the January uprising and uh, a range of other catastrophes. I've simply forgotten. 2022, uh, you know, energy crisis, the war, yeah. etc. 2023, it's no longer a case of happy new year. It's holy fuck new year. Yeah. No, well, that's, what can happen to so us now? You want to jump one year forward ahead yeah, of you? Yeah, I would. You're on your own, mate. Well, no, but yeah, because you think it's going to be worse. No, I, I just want to. I just want to get over whatever 2023 is going to uh, throw at us. Uh, that's no, what no, no, we, uh, it used to be a case, you know, throwing the New Year's party, happy New Year, kiss the girlfriend, yeah, blah blah blah. Now it's now you're grabbing your nails and you're being dragged from one year into the, the next, next. Going, oh my god, well, it's got, it's got it. At okay. some point, it's got to get better, hasn't it? Surely, at some point. But anyway, look, oh. this uh, over this next few weeks or next five weeks, we're going to look at a bunch of economists who you think. Think we should know more about. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and I guess a lot of these are people who have influenced your thinking. Very much so. Uh, yeah. And so they're not the sort of mainstream economists. Some of them people will never have heard of. But we're going to start this week with one that possibly is familiar to, to a number of people, Irving Fisher. Indeed, yep. American mm. economist. He was sort of around, well, he straddled the 19th and 20th century. He died mm. in 1947. Mm. Went to Yale. Smart guy. Uh, one of his books was The Purchasing Power of Money in 1911 when he looked at the, the relationship between money supply and price levels, mm-hmm. which is what, uh, I mean, you know, isn't that what we call monetary theory? It's pretty much, you know, uh, straight. There's, there's, there's a straight line from that sort of thinking to Milton Friedman's monetarism, definitely. Right. And it's also like, you know, you, you had debates over the nature of money going to the, well, the I've, I've forgot the currency school versus the, and I've forgotten the name of the other one just momentarily. Uh, but you have the, the different approaches to money which go back, you know, two or three centuries. And fundamentally, the quantity theory of money 
as all the way through. And at this point, Fisher was continuing the quantity theory of money approach. Right. So what is the quantity theory of money? And, and well, basically, it was around before. He didn't invent it. Though did he contribute? No, no. Right. I mean, you, you know, the banking school versus the currency school. They were the two classical right. debates, and you had people saying, you know, "Oh, the currency was there's a fixed relationship between the stock of money and the level of output," and the banking school, the fundamentally the endogenous money approach that I'm part of, the, you don't have that fixed relationship. Uh, but in, if you look at Milton Friedman, just on that first yeah, one, because yeah. we're, we're going to have to do this step yeah. by step, because I know we've got quite a few new listeners, and they're going to be in the same, almost in the same boat I am. Oh the, my you god, know, we need to be handheld thing. through all of this. <laughs> I mean, we've doing this for six years. I still need to be handheld through it all. Yeah, yeah. But okay, a, a, a fixed relationship between the amount of money and output. Yeah, yeah, and, and which is crazy, isn't it? Because we because well, we do know it's to do with the speed. I mean, anything is to do with the speed at which well, that's, money that's, circulates. That's the velocity of money turning up as well. But right. uh, but fundamentally, I mean, if you look at and we're going off tangent here as we always do. do yeah, yeah. But if you look at Milton Friedman's uh, Milton Friedman's main uh, intellectual contribution, like you know, we all know for the quantity theory of money and so on, what he really saw as his main contribution was the monetary history of the United States, and he wrote that largely to prove counterfactual, <laughs> it was a counterfactual, that the velocity of money is relatively constant. No, now, it isn't. No, it we, isn't. Know, we know that because it's been slowing it down Slowing down and it fluctuates yeah. with the trade cycle and so on. And yeah. even some of his own acolytes, and I, like if you look at the work of uh, Kidlin and Prescott, mm. they did empirical work and completely contradicted the idea that it was constant. But a large part of Friedman's argument was velocity is like a given and therefore, and he said money drives the, drives the inflation level. So you had money times the velocity of money equals the price level times effectively real output, the level of transactions. And by saying that the uh, velocity was constant and money was determined by the government, this is the whole helicopter argument, then you got the proposition that changes in money cause changes in the price level. Right. And you insulate our real but, output from... So it, it's the monetary value that varies in that, and it's all driven by naughty government money creation. That's So that so that, that stage, what, let's go back, back to Fisher again, what you've got is somebody who's really... Ex believes in the mainstream paradigm and is extending the mainstream paradigm. And that's where he began, and that's not where he ended up. Right. Okay. So he's. So what was his belief then? If we're saying that okay, output is not specifically related to the. the oh, he, he, was, of money. he was. He was a straight. Uh, like when he did his PhD and when he was became famous as well, uh, he was very much a, a mainstream uh, extender of Vol Volra's model. Like he, so he had the, the idea that you had a, a price system which determined equilibrium. Equilibrium is an essential component of his analysis of capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so he was very much the mainstream. He was very mathematically talented. And also he was a tinkerer. And this is one fascinating thing which he shares in common with, with Phillips, which is a, a, quite an intriguing contrast. He actually built a hydraulic Yes. calculation machine. Because there weren't computers around in those days. So if you wanted to... about 100 years before computers. Became, so if you yeah. wanted to include multiple factors, you needed to build a machine. Hmm. And he built it using... He built, he built a machine to calculate equilibrium price levels. Right. Uh, so it was Volra's Vol concept of a set of prices. And out of that, he got this idea that you could... Uh, you know, using hydraulics, you could have different different utility. Uh, if you had people with marginal utility at one extent, you had marginal cost at the other. Multiple commodities involved in the whole thing, and you could you'd, you'd vary the amount of water in different parts of the system. Again, very much like Phillips's later hydraulic machine, and it would then calculate.
calculate the optimal price ratios given the utility functions you have at one side and the cost functions on the other for multiple markets. So this is his general equilibrium model. This Very is much like, general like equilibrium. Eight, 1800, late 1800s, 1891, yeah, yeah. I think he, was, mm. he submitted his paper on this. Mm. So what was so? But he was arguing then that there was that the, you know which, which you've always said is not the case that mm. the we and are he not. He found out the hard way that it wasn't the case, and this right. is the fascinating thing about him because as like the case it, being that the economy is in equilibrium. It is either yeah. going from or heading back to some point of equilibrium. Yeah, and like his 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 PhD thesis was published as a book, The Theory of Interest. That was his major contribution. And before you got the, all the nonsense coming out of Sharp and Co. and the efficient markets hypothesis, that was the mainstream interpretation of finance. And fundamentally, everything the mainstream do is trying to shoehorn reality into a pair of intersecting supply and demand curves. Okay? Yeah. So what he argued, again, he applied this idea to what is the rate of interest. And of course, have interest, you've got to be borrowing money. So therefore, you have debt. And debt, therefore, is a stock uh, of, of you know accumulated Debt uh, borrowing in the past becomes current stock of debt. And to maintain the assumption of equilibrium in that market, you had to have a vision of equilibrium through time. So as part of his theory of interest, he said he assumed that debts are repaid. Okay, All debts are repaid. And he assumed that the market is in equilibrium, not merely at this point in time, but through time as well. And that's and those are the essential assumptions he made, and he acted upon those assumptions himself in his own private life, uh, which led to him being enormously wealthy and then enormously bankrupt on the other side. <laughs> right. So, but I mean, is he wrong on that? That all debt has to has to be repaid? Absolutely, he's wrong. I mean, he's right that it has to be legally. He's wrong mm. that it is practically. Right. And then the consequences of not being repaid are, are disastrous, as he found out himself right. uh, in, the, in the Great Crash. But so you, you had somebody who had, uh, first of all, he was a tinkerer and a very good tinkerer. I mean, yeah, yeah. making these mechanical models is incredibly gifted. And he was, he was fascinated, wasn't he, by complex modeling, basically. That was his, so it wasn't just in economics because he, uh, he developed a mechanical diet indicator. Uh, to calculate daily consumption of fats, carbohydrates, and proteins. This was in 1903. So it wasn't just economics. Mm, mm. I think anything where there was a whole load of variables that somehow interplayed, yeah, it, he if, wanted to build a model for it, a mechanical Fisher, model for if it. If Fisher had been around at the time of the, 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 the transistor was invented, he would have been making the first computers. He was definitely somebody whose interest crossed over into engineering and science mm. rather than just being related, related to economics. And he was also, of course, you probably discovered, a prohibitionist. Right. No, yeah. I didn't know that. You didn't okay. know that. No, oh, no. he was okay. uh, he was probably better known for being a teetotal and anti-alcohol and in favour of prohibition than he was economics. Right. So he had quite a quite a wide range of, of talents. But the like the teeth. This is what you can do if your brain isn't uh, muddied by alcohol and other substances, isn't it? I think it's actually an argument in favour of alcohol, frankly, <laughs> and other muddying substances. But but what so so he had that the, the prohibitionist, which made him again a public figure because supporting prohibition. During prohibition was definitely something that you know mains to the, the dominant political interest at the time, like. But it made you pretty unpopular. People who thought a speakeasy was a good place to go for an unwind. So mm. you know, gave him a controversial picture there as well. But the most important thing in terms of why he had such public prominence was also his tinkering. Have you discovered that you said that he made the first Rolodex? 
No, I didn't know that. Yeah, okay. No. So okay. the Rolodex, now this is for those, those youngins in the audience here, like a Rolodex is a physical version of your contact, contact list. list yeah, okay. before you had it on computer or okay. on your mobile phone. So he made it was a, ro- a rotary device. He again made it himself back at home, yeah. it, it, you, you, and it had A to Z, and he'd rotate the the thing and go A, B, C, D, et cetera, find it. You know, if you're looking for, for uh, Marshall and you go to M and then there's look for under A, Marshall, there's his details, you pull the card out. Well, he sold that to the RAND Corporation in return for shareholdings and RAND plus money. And then he invested on margin in the stock market during the 1920s. And you'll find writings of him later where he de- de- decries the use of margin debt. Good reason being that's what drove him bankrupt. Right, okay. So, like he borrowed, he, he had he was worth something like in terms of rough $2,000. He, he was worth something like about $10 million, courtesy of his deal with the Rand Corporation. Okay. So even back then, because we think of, because I think of, you know, the Thatcher era as being the era where Debt became good, you know. That like, you know, my mum and dad were always always taught me that you know don't spend money if you haven't got it. Mm. The exception being perhaps you know when you're taking out a mortgage, but even then, don't overstretch yeah, yourself. Yeah. Now, of course, I have overstretched myself because everybody else does because you have to to be able to afford a house. Yeah. Uh, but but also people borrow now to invest, which well, was so you, unthinkable. And, and, but and so in you thought I thought that was sort of like a Thatcher era thing. No, here well, you are saying here we are, ten well, of the it, century. It, it, people there are, there is some potential commonality with the COVID period we're going through now and mm. uh, because the Spanish flu hit in, I think, 1917 and 1918, killed more people than got killed in the First World War. Um, people were wearing masks, had the mask, anti-mask, pro-mask stuff happening at that time as well. Um, and then this, the, it disappeared. There's still no exp- – there must be in the technical literature some explanation of why it petered out, but it did peter out. Um, and then they had the 1920s. And like uh, this was after some inflation during the First World War, which reduced the level of private debt. And then it was all let's party. I mean, the 1920s was the party mm. decade, yep. you know, the, the roaring 20s, yep. and it roared on borrowed money. So what you and this is the one remarkable thing that I found by looking at level of margin debt, because now when you borrow on margin, you have to pay. You can you you you, you put down five hundred thousand, you can buy a million dollars worth of shares, but in his time, you put down. 500,000, you could buy 5 million because the margin ratio was 10. Right. Okay, so you could buy $5 million worth of shares with $500,000 worth of your own cash. Because they didn't know what was coming up in the 1930s. Well, they didn't, but they did. <laughs> what I decided to do is look at the level of margin debt. There's a wonderful database called the Global Financial. We're getting miles away from Yeah, that's all right. We'll get back to it. We'll get back to it. You see, the um, uh, Global Financial Database, and that included data on margin debt prior to the current records, which started, I think, about 1956. And like from 1956 data through to now, margin debt never exceeded 3% of GDP. Okay. Still a substantial amount of money that's borrowed to gamble on share prices. Mm. But you'll see the spikes in 2000, 2007, and pretty much now as well, hitting about 3%. When I normalized the data that I got from the Global Financial Database uh, to match the later data, the level of margin debt in 1920 began at 1% of GDP and peaked on in October 1929 at 13% of GDP. Right. Nor- so that that's just so it's such an enormous level, and of course everybody was taking out margin loans with a ten to one ratio. Now the idea was, if you got a ten percent gain in the market, you double jump. You 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 like you know the market goes up ten percent. You go you know hang on, you borrow a hundred thousand. 
Yeah. You have 100,000. You buy a million dollars worth of shares. They rise in value by 10%. They go from 1 million to 1.1 million. Compared to your 100,000, you've doubled your money. Okay. Right. So that's, that's, that was the attraction of margin debt. But it meant the opposite ratio. If you had... You bought a, you had a hundred thousand, bought a million dollars worth of shares. They gained it by ten percent. Your entire capital is wiped out. So, the, hence your point about debt isn't always repaid, as, right. he, as he discovered to to his cost. Yeah. But is that? I mean, you'd be thinking, well, okay, if I'm if I'm investing, if I'm borrowing to invest, then that is money which is being used to help companies grow, which is not which really, is garbage, of which course, because, because you buy shares, shares on the secondary exactly. market, you're exactly. buying out another speculator. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wonder if he if, if he if he I mean, he must have realised that. He, he, he if you read his, like he was he was actually in the same situation as Paul Krugman. Uh, because he was a columnist for the New York Times right. and, re- and re- requoted, you just find numerous newspaper articles on Fisher's opinion of this, that and the other, not a re- regular column so much as, as Krugman's, but he was literally being read by people. And because he was saying that when the stock market was booming, that was natural and sensible. And when the crash hit, it was a lunatic fringe. We have to wait for the lunatic fringe to disappear. And he made the, the famous comment uh, in 19... I think it was September 1929, that shares seem to have reached what appears to be a permanently high plateau. Now, that's more most people ever see of the quote. But he's actually referring to the quotes of, I think it was, uh, not, I'm thinking of Babbage, but I've got the name wrong. Uh, but there was another, a, a, he was a bull commentator, and there's a bear commentator in the same newspaper. He said, I doubt that there will ever be, uh, as Mr. Babbage is saying, a, a, a 10 or 20% fall in the value of shares. Well, three weeks later, that happened in one day. And he was initially in panic. You can read this, what's going on? This is the crazy lunatic fringe. Wait till it settles out. He mm. was wiped out of margin debt. And the only reason he didn't have to declare bankruptcy was his wife's sister was very wealthy and she lent him money to pay back the margin calls and forgave the debts on her deathbed. So he was the lunatic fringe himself because he, he did. Was, he didn't realize. He was a lunatic, he was a, no, he was a lunatic center. Right. This is the, yeah, the yeah. Ma- okay, everybody charging off the same cliff with literally margin debt reaching thirteen percent of GDP. So he, because he did write, didn't he, uh, uh, about over speculation because of that lunatic fringe after that experience Be- because they didn't know what they were doing. Well, he was the lunatic. Yeah. Okay. In, but he liked investment trusts. He said, you know, you're better off with investment trusts yeah. because they are experts, not the lunatic fringe. And the experts know what they're doing. They know how the market is going to go. And I think the best account of that is a wonderful old uh, movie, Trading Places, with, uh, what's his name, the, the, the Dan Aykroyd and um, I've forgotten the other actor, the leading actor. Not in, seen the movie. Huh? So I have not seen the movie. Oh, you should see yeah, it. It's yeah. wonderful. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's basically everybody is hanging off. This is where Keynes's wisdom comes in. So he said it's better to fail conventionally than to fail than to succeed unconventionally. So the whole idea that you would you would the experts they're sharing the same delusions. Mm. They amplify each other, and that's what he realised. The trusts weren't at all experts in ways of getting the right stock market. They were. The, the, the yet again ways of uh, perpetuating the bubble. And he didn't like capital gains tax because he said that would mean owners of stocks uh, that have greatly increased in value mm. would be reluctant to sell them because they didn't want to pay the capital gains tax, mm. so they'd hang on to them. Therefore, mm. that would add to the value of those stocks. So uh, I don't know whether that's a good thing or a, a bad thing. Maybe he maybe he was writing all of this when he was trying to you know see his stocks. Well, he, he was higher. becoming an extremely wealthy person. I yeah, mean, yeah. he was literally in in two th- in like in in terms of what he was worth at, in terms of dollars, current dollars. He's probably worth one or two hundred million. Yeah. Okay. He wasn't 
Elon Musk levels of wealth, but he was extremely wealthy, and then it was all gone in a matter of days in 1929. So is that when he started focusing on debt then? Yeah, because he said... Because he, 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 he had first-hand experience of it. First-hand experience. Because debt deflation, I think, is part, of, part and parcel of his body Absolutely of work. Absolutely essential. That's, that's the major con- contribution. The, contribution the, the lasting contribution he's made right. is the debt deflation theory of Great Depressions. Okay, now we understand how why and how he got there, because he experienced it first-hand. We'll look well at that. Thrilling. We'll look at that after the break on the Debunking Economics podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, we are looking uh, this week, and actually for the next five weeks, we are looking at economists that you should know about. Today, it's Irving Fisher. We've looked in the first part about how uh, he was a man who got himself into debt, and then uh, from spending a lot of time talking about the stock market because he was heavily invested in it, in fact, uh, overly leveraged in it, and then paid the price of that, uh, he started looking at, uh, at debt and debt deflation. And also disequilibrium, and this is the essential thing that, like, if you Which he'd read, been a proponent of. Huh? He'd been a proponent of, well, a proponent e- of equi- thinking, equi- equilibrium thinking. Term. Everything was thinking in equilibrium. Yeah. And then he realised, but looking back, you know, because he, 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 he had an incredible meteoric rise... Equally a meteoric collapse. Where do you get the idea of a meteoric rise from? Like a meteor rises from the surface of the planet? Yeah. yeah that's they a never wrong thought analogy. Before, but yeah, yeah, a bit inverted. Meteors into, well, he did the, the reverse meteor, right. like the standard meteor mm. on the other side of the stock market crash and was wiped out. Uh, he only survived in, in a long term sense, A, because of his, as I mentioned, his uh, sister in law forgiving her, his deaths to her, but B, Columbia University gave him a free house as well. That's nice. Yeah, so that's nice. So mm. that's why he was still, he wasn't homeless. And this, <laughs> so it was an incredible shock to his system. And so he, he was saying, where did I mislead myself was really his orientation. So he'd look back at that thing about debts must be repaid and the market isn't always in equilibrium through time to realize both of those were false. Debts weren't repaid. Right. And, and there are periods where markets are massively disequal. There's too much of this, too little of that. And so he, he, the debt deflation theory starts from a proposition the market is out of equilibrium. Now, that means when a neoclassical reads it, that line just disappears. They can't see the words out of. They just see equilibrium. Mm. So you read Bernanke's attempt to interpret Fisher. And it's completely misses that essential element. And he again says, uh, you know, nominal debtors, you know, uh, because of it's all, all the fact was debts in nominal terms rather than real terms. We borrowed in real terms, it wouldn't be a problem. This sort of nonsense neoclassicals come up with all the time. So they can't interpret him properly. But he basically said, he, the, 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 we, we have um, 
the beautiful statement from Keynes to say that uh, equilibrium is blither, which he didn't actually write down, but he said to, to imagine uh, that the markets are in perfect equilibrium uh, is to imagine that the Atlantic can be without a wave. And that's the way that Fisher put yeah. it across. So the market will, will, there will never be such a thing. Yes, you can imagine an equilibrium for the Atlantic Ocean. Will it ever be in it? No. There'll always be waves. You'll be above or below yeah, equilibrium. Uh, yeah, but, but, but they are on a on an axis, though, aren't they? I mean, so is that a good analogy? I mean, no. <laughs> it's cause, you know, because yeah, because those waves are you know the, the Atlantic Ocean is well, there, there's you, the you, volume you, of water you, in the Atlantic Ocean. You can Ocean work is, at it. You can do a gravitational calculation, okay, mm. and say with the mass of water in, in it, if it's perfectly flat, then this will be the equilibrium level of the Atlantic. Right. Okay. But it's always rising above or below that point of yeah, equilibrium. Yeah. And, and, and they fluctuate either side of it. And, right. but are the fluctuations going to be um, uniform? So like a plus and minus cancel each other out and you might as well... No. This is the other thing. There's, there's, a, there's a... When you get into a nonlinear system, the equilibrium does not have to be the attractor, the centre around which it rotates. You can have more up, up balance in one direction than you, than, than you have in the down and the other. So... The idea that the equilibrium will be the attractor is itself wrong. There's a beautiful piece in by John Blatt in Dynamic Economic Systems. And if anybody wants to get a, a real grasp on the sort of economics we're talking about today and this work that I'm doing, buy that book. It's a beautiful piece of writing. But he explains at one point when he's talking about the Goodwin cycle, and we're going to talk about Goodwin as one of these mm. economists later, uh, he said that the you have two two factors go into the Goodwin cycle. One is the wages share of GDP, which is fundamentally income distribution because there are only two social classes in Goodwin's model. So what goes to workers is one minus what goes to capitalists. Um, so you've got the wage distribution of income and then the employment rate. So you therefore think that the equilibrium of the system is going to be equilibrium value for wages and equilibrium value for the employment rate. But no, when you have a when you, when you have a, the Phillips curve as it should be with nonlinear, it's not the equilibrium of the employment rate that's the center. It's the nonlinear transformation of that that's the center. So you don't get the you know equilibrium is plus or minus and everything cancels out and you can forget about the non-equilibrium stuff. It but did, did he recognise that? Because he started talking about with, uh, I mean, trade cycles almost, didn't he? That mm. we, go, we go through this this period of, you know, never had it so good like he did and then uh, the what's it hits the fan and uh, mm. but I have to say what's it now because I don't want to get us off Apple. You know, they take, yeah. they take Apple take you off if you say swear words or you have oh, to, or, no. you, or you've got to be, you know, so we've, oh. got, we've got to mind our language. If oh, we're damn. Going, we're going for a point. That's going to get me banned? I think damn's all right. Damn's all right. So anyway, the, yeah. yeah, so we, we've got these cycles. Uh, so you have it so good, and then, of course, you get this period of contraction because you, people have borrowed, then they start. And I think this was his argument, wasn't it? You get to debt deflation, you, you've, you've borrowed to such a point, either you can't pay well, back those debts, or you panic and you pay back those debts. And then when you pay back those debts, you're, in effect, shrinking the money supply. So was he... Yeah, yeah. And he was aware of the fact that the money supply was determined by this, the this amount is, of and this debt? Is, yeah, this is this is where he starts breaking away from the Milton Friedman, because the the, the the monetarist attitude fundamentally is that the government controls the money supply, and therefore all the problems of the system are caused by the government creating too much or sometimes too little money, right. uh, which is the, the that was Milton Friedman's position decades later. But what Fisher realised, and he actually says this in Booms and Depressions, some first principles, which is a a book that precedes writing the debt deflation theory of Great Depressions, which is the very concise article. Um, but in 
in that, he says that a man-to-man debt is very different to a bank debt. He says, mm. with a man-to-man debt, pardon the yeah, yep. second, okay. With a man-to-man debt, when, when a person who's in debt pays it down, the person who uh, lent the money gets spending power returned. Yeah, and we talk, a, this is what we talked about last week. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But he then said, when you have a bank debt, the money just simply disappears. Mm. Okay, and so that was an essential insight that was, and this actually unites all of the people we're talking about, except Goodwin. Funnily enough, Goodwin doesn't actually understand money, which I find ridiculous because his right. father was a, his grandfather was a banker, and he went, his father. The bank failed during the Great Depression, which threw the family into poverty. Just because you work in a bank doesn't mean you understand the way the bank works. Oh, look, I know it? that. Yeah. I know plenty of people in the finance sector prove that on a daily basis. Hello, um, <laughs> but uh, but but that's the the, the orientation. Is a good one leaves money out, but Fisher realizes the importance of the endogenous creation of money. Right, and so he so said when you pay the debt bank debt down, you destroy money. And that therefore can give you what he, what I call Fisher's paradox, and he expressed it as a paradox. The more debtors pay, the more they owe. But he didn't actually have the explanation of a cycle as much as Minsky did later. What, what Fisher began by saying, he said, that you, you, you have to start from the proposition that all economic variables are above or below their ideal equilibrium. Okay. You're never going. Even if you did have a tendency towards it, the odds that you would be at equilibrium in any of those variables is vanishingly small. So you've got to start from a non-equilibrium position. He said the two most important things which give you non-equilibrium are t- excessive debt, too much debt, and too low a rate of inflation. So he said if you get a combination of too much debt with too low inflation, then you can have a process that leads to a collapse. And the idea was that, first of all, you have too much debt. Everybody's in too much debt. What's your reaction to the too much debt? You want to get money in so you can pay your debts down. How do you do that? You cut your prices. Okay? Everybody does the same thing. They're all trying to attract entrance through Fast there. money. Trying to get fast money by selling more. You sell, so you drop yeah. your prices. Right. You then pay the debt off. That you with the with the lower cash flow coming through the door, but because the prices have fallen, the real burden of debt has risen. He said. So the, this is the true paradox that defines all great depressions: the more debtors pay, the more they owe. Right, because you borrowed money to produce whatever it is that you're producing, so your return on capital is mm. less. Is that, was yeah, that his yeah, argument? Yeah. Right, and also because you destroyed the money supply. Right. And so if you do then see the money supply turning over and giving you GDP, then you have a. Uh, a reduction in GDP caused by the reduction in debt. Right, but that sounds a little counterintuitive. If you're trying to get more money in because you've got too much debt, you lower your prices to try and get your turnover up. I guess is his his, yeah, his argument. Yeah, yeah, and then of but, you, if, but if if times are good at that stage, I mean that would have right. Okay, so the tide has turned. The tide has turned. Right. Okay, so you, you're worried about the debt you came because you can see the economy is starting to yeah, tank. So yeah. you go, okay, I've got to get and look, got look, to get if, money in quickly. If, so if you look back at the the monetary data from the 1920s, and this is of course, androgynously created money, so it's bank credit and et cetera, et cetera. That peaked in about 27, 28. It's hard to find the precise data because you get data on an annual basis rather than monthly as we as we get now. But there was a decline in the turnover of money then. And Richard Vague's work here, which is extremely important, the stuff that Richard did in um, uh, A Brief History of Doom, he found that there was... <laughs> Yeah, great book. Another record. Richard's one I love of my, that title. It's a great title. It's actually suggested to him by the publishers. It wasn't his own idea. But this, it's just a brief history because we couldn't cope with the full history. Well, he's of actually Doom. done the brief, full history as well in an yeah. illustrated manual from all the right. The original but all those people who've read it have now committed suicide, unfortunately. So now it's just the brief history because it's too much, <laughs> too much to take the full, the full story of Doom. Okay, just stick you, with the <laughs> stick with the brief one. Okay, so so Richard found that there was a. 
and I wasn't aware of this, there was a there was a real estate bubble at the start of the 1920s. So so frequently, even a crash we associate with a stock market crash began with a real estate bubble. Okay, so and this is what Ponzi was caught up in as well. The 20, 1917, I think, of Ponzi scheme. Yeah, uh, the one in Florida when he started selling housing in a place that didn't exist. Um, so you, you you had all this real estate stuff kicking it off, and then it turned over into the stock market as well. And throughout the 1920s, while uh, Calvin Coolidge was paying down government debt at the rate of one percent of GDP per year, and then saying that's what's causing this wonderful boom we're having. At the same time, on average, because of very volatile. Uh, the annual increase in money supply was 5% a year because of people borrowing money. Mm. Okay. So the, the, the mainstream will focus just on the on, on the reduction in government debt and say, well, look, the boom conditions of the 1920s were created by Coolidge's surplus. You'll find the Austrians making this case all the time. The boom was actually created by the increase in private debt. And most of that went to real estate initially. Then it went into the stock market with this 10 to 1 leverage out of margin debt. Right. Okay. So, yeah. So people investing a, a chunk of it. But even if, it, if people were investing in a good way and putting it into into businesses, and we spoke about this in a recent edition of the podcast as well. Yeah. I mean, everyone assumes that they are going to do better than they do in and, reality. And therefore, you, you people borrow. There's an excessive investment. This is where Sean Payton is particularly important. Another one we'll talk about in one of the future podcasts. But, yeah, the, because everybody is trying to be the one who comes out on top. Yeah. And Everybody's building, assuming that the market's going to grow. You know, they're going to their share of the market is going to grow faster than everybody else's share of the market. Well, you get overinvestment. Yeah. You borrow too much money, you can't support. And I've it. seen that so many times firsthand. Business models for startups, and you just go, "There's no way in the world this is credible." And people just going, "I know, but we've got to get the money." You know, <laughs> it's like <laughs> if we're honest, no one would ever buy put, put money into anything. Is the argument that is given time and time again. So, yeah, and the euphoria yeah. is an essential part of the booms and and, and and vitality of capitalism as well. So yeah. it's it's a double edged sword. And again, Richard's book makes this point. There's so and back to Richard Richard Vague's work now. So many of the benefits we have from like the railway, for example, it gets me out to here was caused by bubbles in real estate, which led to crashes and mm. the euphoria would take over the market so many. Times and this again is a, I think, is an essential element of all the people we're talking about. Bar again, Richard Goodwin, uh, that they realised that the extent to which financial euphoria was an essential part of the nature of capitalism and how destabilising that is. But that instability is part of the creativity of capitalism as well. So, okay, so in a nutshell, he's saying after this period of euphoria Mm. and overinvestment, we see people then trying to deleverage. They try and deleverage. They drop their prices to try and get as much cash in to try and deleverage. That brings... Prices down, so and, we get so we get deflation. Yeah, and you get the de- deflation means and a shrinking that, of the money supply happening and at the, the same and time. And the burden of debt rises, even though the amount of debt's being the nominal debt is falling. The real the debt ratio of debt to GDP is rising. And when you look at the data, and again, this is what I find. Why is that happening? Why is the because when you're paying the debt down, yeah, okay, your nominal debt falls, but you've cut your prices, so your GDP falls as well. Well, right, okay. And now that actually happened. You look at the data for de- the debt to GDP ratio in America, and I'm going from memory here. It peaks uh, in about 1930-31, while the, the the nominal debt's actually falling. So if you look at the debt to GDP ratio, you find its highest point is say. Again, I'm guessing I've got to have to look it up in the data and fix it up. Thirty-one, thirty-two. Okay, but you look at the debt and it's falling from thirty on. Okay, so you have this decline, negative credit, rising debt level, and the reason is the debt fell by about ten percent, GDP fell by about thirty percent. 
And so you get a rising ratio, even though you've got a falling level of debt. So has it been realized over and over since he oh, made yeah. this observation? I mean, I mean is, is it the no, natural order of things? Yeah, but, it, but, it's, but it's happening. Well, it happened in 1987. It happened in 2000, 2007, um, with, with, but not with the same combination of, of, of deflation plus high levels of debt. So the mm. one time we had that deflation, high levels of debt was 2007. And like you actually, if you, people don't realise this, the, the rate of inflation went from five percent, which is what it was in two thousand and seven before the crisis began, to minus two. When you look at the the monthly CPI data for America, so a seven percent fall change in the rate of inflation from five percent to minus two very very quickly. But then the reflation efforts the governments did the wrong way, but they still did it, meant that you didn't get that continued negative. Uh, price changes, whereas back in the Great Depression, from about 1930 to 33, every year the rate of inflation was minus 10%. So he went from a big ad being an advocate of the economy being in equilibrium or on its way to it or from it, you know, but somewhere hanging around that space to one, I think this is him saying that it's in a constant state of disequilibrium. Yep. And there's three factors there's growth or trend tendencies which are steady, there's haphazard disturbances which are unsteady mm. and then there are which i guess is what he's talking about here cyclical tendencies which are unsteady but steadily repeated yeah and but he didn't quite manage to get a mathematical formulation of that so that's where um well i think i've spent a sense of as i probably come in uh because minsky uh, when you look at hyman minsky's work and we've spoken about minsky recently mm. he's not one of our five we're talking about this particular slab mm. We should actually return to him, I suppose. Yeah, we could. Yeah, well, maybe okay. we'll make okay. it number six, and okay. we'll do we'll okay. do Minsky in the new year. Okay. Yeah. But he uh, he tried to build a mathematical model, and the mathematical model he de- built used uh, Hicks's second order difference equation model of uh, the trade cycle, which became dominant in the fifties. There's there's a slight link to to Fisher in that particular case, um, but I proved it's very very simple. Uh, that Hicks's model is not a model. It's a mistake. Um, so Minsky used the wrong foundation, and then I built the mathematical model that, that combined Fisher with Minsky uh, to give you the, the debt deflation theory that I've built mathematically. Um, but uh, Fisher never quite got there. So he had the verbal explanations of all this stuff, but didn't get the mathematical form. Right. And it seems a very simple explanation, doesn't it? I mean, the way you the way you explain it, that, you know, the, this rush to get money brings prices down, that creates deflation. Yeah, yeah. Seems very logical. It is in an isolated system, though, isn't it? It's, it's like one country. It ignores the international uh, environment, which, well, compl- I mean, the international, which complicates everything. You, you, the international tends to be caught in the same euphoria. Mm. I mean, these things are shared. If you have a delusions growing in America, they'll be growing in the UK as well, and, and uh, India, et cetera, et cetera. So... Um, it's the, the, this is just, it, the more global the world is, the more the, the world behaves the same anyway. I think, in a fundamental way, yeah. 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 So where are we in this now then? Where, where are we in this cycle? Because we're in an unusual times now. Uh, because the, of, ours, because of, ours would be quite disturbing, even to Fisher. So we, we have inflation taking off now, which, yeah. I mean, that's, you can see the two... But we've got heavy debt. Well, but then we've got... Huge, huge it, debt, yeah. probably, huge private debt as well. And in some ways we're... Um, like in, a, in, a, in a, a blockage because you're not going to see any great boom in credit coming out of current levels of debt because they're already so high. You're going to see probably a deflation coming out, a, a reduction in debt because now people are facing extremely high interest rates compared to what they thought they'd be facing. So there's going to be a need to, to, but people to liquidate. Aren't putting, people aren't 
bringing their prices down, though, to try and deleverage, aren't they? That, that might start happening because uh, what we... Because the opposite is happening right now. Huh? Everyone's going, oh, we've got to cover our costs. We've got to push our prices up. Yeah, yeah. And if you're getting inflationary surge. But if you start getting the, the, the debt burden, the servicing issue becoming major because of extremely high levels of debt and much higher interest rates than people expected on that debt when they took it out, then they're going to be forced to... Uh, pay sell assets. So this often initially turns up in a in a desire to sell assets, financial non financial assets, shares and houses, mm. right? liquidate them and get the money and then pay your debt that way. Uh, but then that liquidation process itself starts to cause deflation because you get negative credit. So suddenly the government might be pumping up demand by running a deficit, but the private sector is running a negative. It's reducing its debt level, and that can undercut your demand, even with the government trying to stimulate the economy. Now, when you get governments around the world being obsessed with getting back into fiscal balance again, they're going in the opposite direction. So in that case, the governments will be reducing demand, while the private sector is also reducing demand. Yeah. So that could give us, and I'm not going to say it's going to happen because it's such a weird weird time right now and, for the cost and, pressures. And you've already climbed Mount Kosciuszko. You don't want to do that again. No, I don't want to do it. No, no, yeah. no bets. No bets will be entered into. <laughs> uh, but, but definitely... Uh, there, there are strong tendencies for credit reduction now. Net, reducing your debt is a major pressure. Sure. That will give us negative credit. The negative credit is probably going to come on top of governments also thinking I've got to get their fiscal balances nonsense they do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so the two together uh, could give us a reversal of the price increases. So, right, right, okay. So we could be, yeah, because people are, are pushing prices up at the moment just because their cost of inputs are going up so much. No, and that's the, just, that's the balancing that's, thing. Yeah. Three, three issues are going to bring in for inflation. Markup by, menu, by, by, by capitalists, okay? Yeah. Uh, production costs and demand, when wage demands by workers. We can write off the third as being the cause of the current inflation. The inflation rages the well below the rate of inflation. You've got cost pressures they're coming out of the COVID plus and energy issues as well, and high markups from uh, from capitalists because partly the the monetary demand created by fiscal stimulus gave them the headspace to enable that to happen. You've got so much demand for the commodities which we could buy during COVID period that you, you know, nobody faced any pressure to reduce their prices. So you, you put your markups up, so high markups, but they could come down with a recession. It won't be the wages that fall. It could be the markups that fall. Right. And then when, so when that happens, yeah, we suddenly turn. But then the, we've still got the issue of the cost pressures. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's the one we can't control. Yeah, which is... Which is a bit labour-driven, isn't it? You know, it's it's overseas supply and domestic labour. That's 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 what's driving. But it's but, also energy costs. Yeah, okay, energy yeah. costs start going through the roof then, and they will, uh, because we're you know we're getting to the point where we, you know, we're realising just how the, the climate change issue, the critical role that fossil fuels are in the fragility of human civilization, let alone capitalism. Uh, so we're going to face. All sorts of dynamics there. Right. Uh, so none of the, so there's too meant too much too much going yeah. on to influence his model now, isn't it? In a, in yeah. a way, because he wasn't you know what was it these these were the um, these are the haphazard disturbances which are unsteady, and then we're now getting systemic haphazard. Uh, yeah, and that's the real problem. Yeah, yeah, we've never had to confront before. Yeah. Okay, so is that his major contribution then? He the debt deflation theory, definitely. And I think if people want to get a handle on it, it's a beautiful paper. It's only about 15 pages long. And just search for debt deflation, the theory of Great Depression's PDF, you'll find a copy of it. I think the St. Louis Fed has a copy on the, on the FRED database of the paper. And it's a beautiful statement of a non-equilibrium monetary model of financial instability and breakdown. 
All right, that is your homework for this week. Uh, there you go. Yeah, your answer's in by Friday, please. Uh, <laughs> uh, Richard Goodwin next week. Yes. Uh, yeah? Yep. Okay, yep. we'll do that as we work through five, maybe six economies. We'll see how long we keep this going for. Indeed. Uh, we might run out of them eventually, uh, but mm. that's next week. Thanks for, thanks for that, Steve. Good Welcome. to talk to you again. Yeah. The Debunking Economics Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.